This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Marketing Profs. Do you have the right stuff? Unleash your inner writer by downloading the latest Marketing Profs Marketing Writing Kit for free. You'll find it in the show notes, but you can go to mprofs.com forward slash duct tape. Welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today is Ian Altman. He has a little business called Grow My Revenue. You can find the website at growmyrevenue.com. He's also the author of Upside Down Selling and a book we're going to talk a little bit about today. He's the co-author of a book called Same Side Selling with Jack Quarles. So, Ian, thanks for joining me. John, it's a pleasure to be here. We have so many friends in common. I'm just glad we're going to have an opportunity to chat a little bit. Yeah, amen. So um, what do you mean by same side? Well, I I think traditionally people always think of buying and selling in kind of an adversarial mindset. Right. And so one of the things that we often see is almost every book that's ever been written about sales talks about know your enemy. They either use a game metaphor or a battle metaphor. Yeah, like the the sales playbook. Exactly. So, yeah, so right. I mean, you think about it in a game metaphor, in every game, there's a winner and a loser. Yeah. And the only thing different in a war metaphor is that the loser dies. <laughs> so, so it's kind of dramatic. And then we wonder why there's this adversarial tension yeah. between buyers and sellers. And so Jack and I, Jack's background, uh, my co-author Jack Quarles spent two decades in the purchasing and procurement side of the world. And what we talk about is the adversarial traps that pit buyer and seller against each other. And instead, if you think of the buyer and seller metaphorically as putting a puzzle together, then they have to be working from the same side of the table or it just won't work. Yeah, and I really like that puzzle uh, metaphor too because it does kind of suggest there's a solution where everybody wins. And you may not find it, <laughs> but uh, there, there's a potential solution where everybody wins. And, and in fact, um, uh, when you sent me the book, you've got these handy little uh, – um, um, what would we call these flashcards, I guess, yeah. um, to, uh, you know, so, so that somebody can think about, you know, these elements and you call them uh, entice, disarm and discover, you know, yep. as, as part, part of the puzzle solving, I guess. So you want to break each of those down? Yeah. So the, the idea behind entice, disarm and discover, it, there's, there's a couple things to think about that most people, when someone asks, what do they do? Well, they respond politely and they tell people what they do. Yeah. The problem is the person receiving in probably doesn't know why they might need what that person does yet. Or, so they, or they know for darn sure they don't need that. Yeah, or, or, <laughs> by the way, it, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. No, I mean but, because, because, because of their perception. I mean, you exactly, know, so it's exactly. like, oh, you're a lawyer? Well, I don't need that. Exactly. Right. Oh, you're someone trying to shove something down my throat? I'm going to pass. Best <laughs> offer I've had all day. I'm going right. to go with option B. Right. And so the idea behind entice, disarm, and discover is this notion that First, we have to entice someone's interest by describing problems that we solve with extraordinary results. Then we want to disarm the notion that we're just there to sell something by acknowledging that most of the people we meet with aren't a good fit for what we do. And then we need to trigger a discovery phase to learn more about their situation to see whether or not we can help. And, and so those three steps make it so that we're now positioning ourselves as someone who's there to help solve important challenges, not someone who's just trying to peddle stuff. Yeah, and I think my favorite, quite frankly, is the disarm uh, element too, because I do think that there's there's this, 
you know, constant sort of wall up. Okay, I better, you know, I better hold on to my wallet uh, because, you know, you're here, you know, and something bad's going to happen. And I think that uh, any way in which you can get somebody to say, hey, relax, <laughs> you know, this this is only going to work if it works for you um, is, I think, is a great way to them have them actually listen to what you're talking about. Absolutely. So if you think about it, even even in your business, if, someone's, if someone asks, what do you do? Right. You can describe that or you could describe here are the problems that people typically come to me to solve. Yep. And now someone goes, wow, you know what? I'm having those same problems. Right. And then you say, but you know what? Even though I've got a track record of delivering amazing results, I find that less than half the people I speak with end up being a good fit where they can get those same sorts of results. The rest of them aren't a good fit, and I refer them to somebody else. But I'm happy to learn more about your situation to see whether or not I might be able to deliver those results for you. Well, what it does is the person who identified with that problem, an interesting thing happens in their brain. They're now saying, man, I wonder why he couldn't help me. Of course he can help me. What's wrong with me? I don't need to convince John why he can help me. <laughs> right. And it changes the dynamic because you basically said, look, I'm walking away. I, I may be able to help you, but only if it's important to you. Yeah. And it's not some Jedi mind trick. Right. I believe effective sales is about getting to the truth as quickly as possible. So, so, I have a couple of things I want to go back to there. Um, the the one thing I really like um, you talked about that entice because so many people do say I, I'll keep it you know in my business. Oh well, we help people with their social media. Well, most people are sitting out there saying I sure as hell don't need any social media. But if you start by saying, you know, we help people get more of this and more of that and be more profitable and solve this, you know, issue, like you said, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and social media happens to do that? Oh, okay, now I'll listen. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, I even take it a step further than that. People will say, well, I want better reach. I want better this. I want better that. And a lot of, a lot of businesses won't spend money in those circumstances. But if you said to them, look, you know, people come to me because – their competitors really have inferior offerings, but they get more attention than they do. Yeah. They, they tell us that they're not growing as fast as other people who aren't as good as them are growing, and they have trouble just capturing attention of this changing marketplace, and they don't know how to reach them. And for about half the organizations I speak with, we deliver amazing results where in a matter of months, they see a dramatic change in the, in the size of their business. But sadly, we, we can't help everybody. But if that's something that's important to you, I'm happy to learn more to see whether or not we can help. When you talk about the problems that someone's trying to uh, solve, that becomes really attractive. It's interesting. On my own website this month or, or last month in our web statistics, beyond our homepage, the single most trafficked page on our site is a page titled Problems We Solve. <laughs> That's great. I think everybody should have that. That should be like your about us page. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the things you talk about, and I'm a huge fan of this, but this scares sales folks to death. Um, and, and certainly it probably scares their sales managers more than the sales people. But uh, this idea of narrowing your focus, you can't help everybody. You need to really go after the people that, that you're ideally suited. I mean, I've been preaching that for at least a decade, but a lot of sales yeah. organizations are still sort of resistant, right? It's like, oh, my my target market is anyone who has money. Yep. Uh, you know what? It's here's the thing. Once you get once you get honed in on the problems you're good at solving, and it's not the problems you would like to solve, but the ones that you're good at solving, where you can actually demonstrate your ability to deliver results. Then what happens is 
you now become a trusted subject matter expert rather than a salesperson. I, mean, I recently had one of my articles in Forbes talked about this idea of there are three sales personas. So you can either be the order taker, the salesperson, or the subject matter expert. Mm. And the order taker, someone says, here's what I want. You say, here's how much it is. Great, delivered. Yeah. The salesperson thinks their job is to convince the client they need what they're selling, whether they need it or not. And the subject matter expert is the person the client relies on to help them determine what they need to solve the challenge they're facing. And it doesn't matter what persona you think you are. All that matters is if you're the customer, which one do you want? And the answer is always the subject matter expert. Right. So if you're, if you're spread too thin, you're a subject matter expert to nobody. And as the world evolves, if you're an order taker, guess what? If you're not already being taken over by Amazon, you will be. Just wait. Yeah. Yeah, the, the order taker is, is only taking orders if they're the lowest price. Yeah. Um, another, you, you hinted at this already, this idea of getting to the truth. And, and I've, you know, I've said this and written about this uh, many times. I mean, even in a, a consulting you know, type of engagement, the only time they really go bad is when I didn't dig far enough to know what value meant to them or what a result was going to look like or how we were going to measure a result or what they yeah. really really expected of me and and I think I you know I I talk about it as asking these tough questions and and I think a lot of times we we want to get the sale so bad that we haven't really even understood maybe what their expectations are and I think that that's the the essence of your idea of get to the truth isn't it you, you know what it is and and there's this there's this angel notion that Look, you know, you never want to get a no in sales, and no isn't a bad no isn't a bad answer because it means you're not going to waste more time on it. In 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 my first book, an upside down selling, I profile a company that doubled their growth rate in one year, and they did so by pursuing forty percent fewer opportunities. So it's all about getting to the urgency and the truth and what the client's trying to solve. The second thing you touched on um, that I think is is key for people to really understand, John, is that. When, when we focus on results, I know you talk about this, I talk about this. When, when you're talking to your clients about results and you're making sure you've got a meeting of the minds about what success looks like and what results they're looking to achieve, guess what? The client you can't deliver results for is going to be a train wreck anyhow. Right. So you don't want to sell that deal. Even if you think your job is to sell stuff, your job is to sell good business. Yeah. And if, if you've got a client whose expectation is, oh, yeah, you're going to triple my business in 30 days, guess what? Unless right now they're doing $10 and they expect to go to $30, it's probably not going to happen. If it's anything meaningful, it's not going to happen that quickly. Yeah. Yeah, no, no question. And those, and those, you know, over the years of doing this, uh, that's the only time I've gotten myself in trouble is when I haven't said, you know, spelled those things out and asked those tough questions. Even just, you know, how are we going to measure the success yeah. of this? That's well, a, you know, that's a really, uh, that's a, that's a big trap for consultants. Oh yeah. Well, there, there's one, there's one more side of it, which is, so let's say you say to your customer, you, you're talking to a client and they say, well, I mean, we're looking to double our web traffic in the next 90 days. Right. And you think, based on what you see, that you can help them draw 20% more of the right audience, but you can't double it. Then it's your job to say, you know what, I don't know if that's a realistic goal. Right. And I'd love to be able to tell you that, but my expectation is we're probably going to increase it by 10%, maybe 20% over that time frame. And if you're not comfortable with that, we probably shouldn't move forward. Of course, you, you, you know, there is the classic upsell that you could do right here now, too, though. <laughs> There's always a way. There's always a way. You know, <laughs> it's you know just and, not and, not in the budget we're t currently talking about, though. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and, and the thing there is, like, 
Could you do it? Yeah. Oh, you want you want to increase your web traffic with potential clients? Oh, yeah, then that's different. That's right. I thought you just wanted more clicks because I can hire a bunch of people and just yeah. visit your site all week. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I've been talking a lot about to groups of salespeople is this idea of you know that they have to be educators if they want to be the subject matter expert. You know, maybe that's actually going to require them to write some things and to you know contribute to a Forbes like you mentioned. So you know. Why are sales organizations so reluctant to push their sales folks to do that? Well, you know what? I don't even know if it's a reluctance to push their sales folks. I think it's an evolution of what the salesperson means. And you know, our friend Marcus Sheridan talks about this as well. The, the, the reality is that over historically, the salesperson was the type A, aggressive, in-your-face, right. you know, won't take no for an answer type of person. Well. We don't have to put up with that garbage anymore. That's right. So that person doesn't really resonate with us. We're like, okay, great. Talk to my voicemail. Uh, you're in my spam folder. I'm going to ignore you. Now we have a great relationship. <laughs> but we're always happy to meet with a subject matter expert. And if you're a salesperson that wants to reach your customers, they better see a reason to meet with you or you're just not getting the meeting. And so if you can either walk into somebody and say, look, here are the trends we're seeing in your industry. I want to, I'm happy to share what our research is and what my experience is and see how that fits with you. And you're probably going to get an audience. Or you can say, hey, I want to come in. I want to show you our slide deck of a whole bunch of stuff that hopefully by slide 27, what we find is a subset of our clients will slip into a coma. We can put a contract in front of them. And if we can get them to move their arm a little bit, we can get a signature. I mean, that's almost the strategy that some of these old school companies take. Yeah. So um, the subject matter expert, one of the things that I know you talked about in the book, and um, certainly I'm a, a fan of, uh, one of the things I think the subject matter expert also has to be able to do is, is to say, oh, well, we don't do that, you know, but here's, you know, here's, you know, here's a valuable solution. Here's a trusted partner. Here's maybe even a competitor that could actually get you the result that you want. Um, again, is that, uh, is that going a step too far in this idea of, you know, what? It's, it's, it's not at all. In fact, in, in my prior business, I mean, as you know, I mean, I grew some companies to values in excess of a billion dollars and, um, now I just help other people in growing their businesses. One of the things that we used to do is if we weren't the right person for, for a solution, if we didn't feel we could deliver results, we'd just tell the client flat out, look, we're probably not the best people. We think these other people can help you, though. So the old school salesperson says, oh, now I just lost a deal. But what would happen is for the next 10 years, anything that client was going to purchase, they called us first. Right. And the discussion was never about price. We, we had software and, and business process consulting. And we get someone calls up and says, oh, you know, we, we, need a new, um, we need a new piece of hardware for IT infrastructure. You're talking about a half million dollar purchase. Who should we buy it from? Uh, yeah. We know you guys don't do it, but whoever you tell us to buy it from, that's where we're going to buy it from. Okay, great. And we'd find people we felt could do the best work, and we would never take a dime from those people. But guess what? The, those people, in turn, when someone said, "Hey, who solves this problem?" They're like, "Oh, you got to talk to Ian's guys," because you know they're the guy. They felt like a sense of obligation, but also realized, "Hey, we're always looking out for the client's best interest. We always deliver results. We're a safe person to refer business to, and we get a lot of business because of that." And that notion of restraint, as we talk about in same side selling, is the hardest thing for most salespeople to get because they want to sell more stuff, 
But here's the problem. If your client's evaluating your capabilities on a scale from 0 to 10, 10 being total mastery, 1 being total lunatic, um, whatever drags you down lowers your average overall. So they could say, wow, here are three things we want them to do. These two, these guys do at a 9. They do this one thing at a 5. And what happens is it all gets skewed towards a negative. So they, on, on average, they think of you as a 6. Yeah. If you just stayed away from the thing that you're a five at, you'd be a nine and you'd win that business. And then the other people you bring in can deliver that other piece of the nine. And that kind of loops back to narrowing your focus. So a lot of times, I mean, you, there are companies that, that have stayed in business that they don't really even want to serve anymore. But, uh, they, you know, they, they need to lop it off instead of uh, bleeding yeah. it to death. By the way, and, and I get that this is a tough thing to do because if your business is, let's say, just barely profitable – and you're struggling making payroll, for me to walk in there and say, look, you got to get rid of these two clients. The guy's like, dude, I can't even pay my bills. I'm not saying you just fire people haphazardly, but if strategically you say, look, these guys are not strategic for us. This is not the right type of client for us. We need to focus in this area so we can replace those clients with the right type of clients. Once you get a mix of the right type of clients, those people will refer you to business that will help you grow because you're delivering amazing results as opposed to just delivering effort. So I want to end on this uh, uh, kind of age-old, um, I wouldn't call it an argument. I think everybody's pretty clear on it, but it's certainly something that uh, gets talked about a lot, and, and that's the idea of selling value uh, over price. Yep. Um, and it's a real challenge, I think, for a lot of people because if, if the buyer doesn't know any different, you know, the only thing they can compare is, is, uh, is price. Uh, so you know, how do you help them start appreciating this idea of value and and because it, it goes beyond saying no our stuff's really valuable you mean that doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> well it works for a while i suppose but it, you know it's at some point if you're going to get somebody to you know sign a six or seven figure deal i believe that they have to fully appreciate the you know the the, the return is going to be three million or 30 million exactly well and, and most of it comes not from you talking about what your solution is going to do, but actually earlier in the process talking about what their issue is, how their issue is impacting them, and how important that is to them compared to other things on their plate. So we call that issue impact and importance that says usually what most people do is they see issue and they focus on that, which is kind of the tip of the iceberg. So if you think of it in the Simon Sinek world of what versus why, the issue is the what and impact and importance is the why. So if you start asking your client, well, so let's say you didn't solve this thing, what would happen? And their answer is, well, it'll be no big deal. I mean, we'll just look at it again next year. They're not going to spend money to solve the problem because it's it's not impactful enough for them. But once someone understands and can articulate, man, here's the consequence to our business. Here's how it impacts me personally. And if I don't solve this thing, I'm going to lose my job. It makes it pretty easy now because we should never present price outside of the context of impact. And so there's a concept we use in the book called fit or finding impact together that's all about that. And there's even a a, a model that now I share with people with the same side improv game we've built, which is these four quadrants of information you collect during a meeting that really is the difference between did you have a meaningful meeting or was it a good meeting that might qualify for a good meeting if you were dating but not necessarily in business. Well, and I think that that, uh, you know, that idea of, 
you know, it's kind of, I, I kind of hearken it back to the, the way that I think a lot of medical problems are treated. You know, do you want, you want me to fix the symptom by giving you an aspirin or something, or do we want to actually look at curing the disease? And I think that that's, yeah. uh, that's the, the, once you start understanding the impact of, and the value of that, I mean, even if it's, you know, we have, we have folks that, that I think I have sold over the years that the, the value to them was they were going to start getting to go home earlier at night. Yeah, uh, because because, you know, now their business wasn't going to be such chaos. Well, you know, they put a really high price tag on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I think if you just go in and, and, and you don't appreciate and understand, you know, that value to them, I think sometimes you'll, you'll be selling the wrong thing. You're 100 percent right. And it's something that it's tough for a lot of people to get their arms around because it's like, yeah, but if I go out and show them a demo and I make all, like then they're going to fall in love with it. Yeah. And you know what? Mm, it, it usually doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And by the way, one of the, one of the things I always tell people is if you're more passionate about solving the problem than your customer is, then bring your wallet because you're going to have to pay for it. <laughs> no, no I, there's no question, and I've certainly experienced that over the years. You know, caring more than my customers did um, about the result uh, is a tough way to uh, you know to go bald or something. It's a, it's a tough <laughs> lesson. <laughs> so let's uh, let's end on one. Uh, um, thing that I think we in, in about a minute we can probably solve. How do you get sales and marketing on the same page? Ah, great question. So um, as, as you know, I spend a lot of time with, uh, with, with our friend, our mutual friend, Marcus Sheridan. We actually speak at a lot of events. Doing, we're doing actually a workshop at Content Marketing World this year and um, on, on about this very thing. And what I think in the past what people would see is, okay, sales had one mindset and marketing had a different mindset, and they kind of failed to recognize that they're both trying to accomplish the same thing. And instead, what we need to do is realize that the salespeople are on the front line speaking to customers, getting valuable information that should be part of marketing. And marketing has to realize that their job is not to attract clicks or views, it's to attract the people who you can help the most. And oftentimes for my clients, it's a matter of, look, one meeting a month, sales and marketing hold them together. Mm -hmm. And they actually work side by side trying to solve these issues together. Um, and guess what? Your salespeople need to contribute content to marketing, and your marketing people occasionally should attend a meeting with sales. Yeah, go out, go out on uh, what, uh, what, what used to be called ride-alongs. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? You'll get amazing insight from doing that, and it's not magic. Yep, but it is. I think. I think the real key is it, it actually is a cultural shift, um, because I, I've certainly gone into organizations and said, "Yeah, salespeople need to start contributing content." And and you know, you, depending upon the current culture of the the environment, uh, you you know, you either get scorn or laughter uh, at the at the notion of of that. But I think I think you're right. I mean, it's a it, it really points to a change in in. What market? Who? Who's a marketing person? Who's a salesperson? Who's a service person? I think that all of them, if we're going to create this kind of end-to-end -end customer journey, I, I think they all need to be on the same page. Or you know, the only person that really suffers is is the customer, which ultimately means they'll take their money elsewhere. Yeah, and 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 eventually you get to the point where I think the evolution is that you're going to see a very blurred line between right. sales, marketing, and customer service because. It really all comes back to that same level of the subject matter expert. Yeah, yeah, that's and, what I mean. And that's that's what clients are looking for. I mean, you know, throw engineers in there or programmers in there, you know, because I think that yeah, depending upon the the business model, uh, I think uh, I think they're 
uh, some tremendous uh, customer service, sales, and marketing people. Yeah. By the way, the the, the case study in Upside Down Selling I was mentioning, these guys doubled their growth rate in that short period of time, and they have a sales force of zero. They literally engaged. What we did is we engaged all their non-sales people yeah. to know what types of questions to ask, how to conduct a meeting that generates results, rather than. I mean, I always laugh. You say, well, gee, they had a good meeting. Really? What made it a good meeting? Oh, we had a good conversation. They really liked me. And I always say, oh, was this a business meeting or a date? Because that's a good way to qualify a good date. But I don't think this is dating. So, you know, what were they trying to solve? Why? What was? What were the results? Who else is impacted? If you don't know those things, then maybe you were at the wrong meeting. Yeah. Talking to Ian Altman, author of Same Side Selling. Uh, you can find him at growmyrevenue.com. And uh, Ian, thanks for joining me. I, uh, I'm pretty sure I'll see you probably at Content Marketing World will be the next time. I'm sure we'll see you soon. Thanks again, John.